Amen. Well, good morning, CBC. Uh, grace and peace to you. Um, I don't know about you, but this is the way it is for me. Easter comes and goes too quickly. Uh, before we've had the opportunity to soak it in, it's past. Um, and that happens for me, and I get to spend months preparing for it. And so what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is bask in the resurrection glory. And the place that we want to do that is in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the definitive chapter on the resurrection. Really, the only place in Scripture that we find an extended treatment of the resurrection. And the occasion for this extended treatment, it's quite obvious, is that there were some in the Corinthian church, right? those who Paul was writing to in this particular letter, who denied the resurrection, right? who for one reason or another didn't think it would happen. It seems, however, that they granted Jesus' resurrection, however they understood it. What they denied was our resurrection. And why they doubted it, why they denied it, we do not know. Scholars have their speculations, um, and many say it was likely due to the novelty of the doctrine. Right? The resurrection wasn't a common belief back then. It wasn't a normal thing. And so here comes the Apostle Paul preaching the resurrection, and naturally, some begin to doubt. Now, it's a novel doctrine, and, and when we think about it, some post-mortem survival seems reasonable that there is a bit inside us that hangs on past death, be it as a spirit or a ghost or what have you. But then, as now, the resurrection of the body is a rather incredible thing. To both the modern mind and to the ancient mind, each for their own reasons, the notion that perishable bodies shall rise to immortality is a contradiction in terms. Yet, near the heart of the biblical testimony is that God has a plan for the entire creation. Not merely the spiritual, but the material world which he created. So most doubt it, some deny it. In fact, there have long been efforts to forge a Christianity without the resurrection. It happened in Corinth, it happened, we know, even after that in church history, and it happens still today. And it goes something like this. We know there was not a physical, historical resurrection. What matters is the idea of resurrection. What matters is this truth, right, that is communicated through this elaborate metaphor. And that truth is the truth of a new beginning, um, a fresh start, and second chances. Jesus was a teacher of love and justice, and the supernatural elements are legends that sprung up around him, later constructions of the church. And so we can set aside all of that without consequence because the real beating heart of the faith is an ethic of love anyway. What Jesus was really about was that we'd love God and love each other in this business of the resurrection. We don't really have to attend to. Now, 
What do you think the Apostle Paul would have to say about such efforts to reconstruct the faith without the resurrection? Now, based on his words here in 1 Corinthians 15, he would say, I suppose, that a Christianity without the resurrection is really no Christianity at all, but instead another religion altogether. Something entirely new and not what the apostles preached, because Christianity, as the apostles practiced it, depended entirely upon the physical, historical resurrection of Christ. Hence, in their denial of the resurrection, the Corinthians are essentially sawing the branch that they're sitting upon. Paul explains to them the unintended consequences of their denial, right? They thought we could just remove the resurrection and carry on as normal, but Paul says that's not the case. He says if we are not raised, if there's no resurrection for us, he says then Christ is not raised. There's a connection between the two. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain. If our preaching is in vain, your faith is also in vain. And if your faith is in vain, you are still in your sins. And if you are still in your sins, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's it. And if all that is true, he concludes, we are of all men most to be pitied. Right? We're a bunch of fools following, pretending this resurrected Christ. So, The point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that one cannot deny the resurrection and continue with the rest of the faith as normal. The resurrection undergirds and supports the entire edifice without which none of the rest of Christianity, moral or spiritual or intellectual, makes any sense at all. You take away the resurrection and it all falls apart. It all comes crumbling down. Now that's a sobering ultimatum the Apostle Paul puts before us. If the dead are not raised, if in the future there isn't some day when these mortal bodies of ours will rise from the grave into the newness of life, if that doesn't happen, we really are coddling ourselves with these stories, too cowardly to face the truth about reality. We really are those people that everyone says we are if the resurrection doesn't happen. And so it goes some way, the apostles' ultimatum, toward demonstrating the absolute and first priority that the resurrection has in Christianity. Without it, our faith is no longer what the apostles preached. And that's the point that the apostle makes initially to the Corinthians. He says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very gospel that was preached to you. The resurrection is not a fringe or optional doctrine, but it is the good news. Listen um, now what he says here in in verses 1 through 4. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. He says, this is it. This is the message I came bearing which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Such is the fundamental gospel message. It says, here's the message I preach to you. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's the gospel. And at its core lies the death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel is not a set of rules and instructions. Paul doesn't come to the Corinthians saying, do this. Stop doing this. Nor is it a philosophical system by which we attain to the truth. He doesn't come teaching some tools of meditation and enlightenment. He comes preaching the gospel, which is simply news. These things happened. Christ died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. That's the gospel. The whole faith depends on those historical happenings. So we see then, very clearly, that there is an inherent, unavoidable historical element to Christianity. The good news that the Apostle Paul came preaching to the Corinthians is the good news of eyewitness testimony of certain historical events. The apostolic message was very simple. God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. We are witnesses. We saw him after his death. So a non-historical, a non-supernatural, namely non-resurrection faith, strikes at the very foundation of the good news. Paul is telling the Corinthians, listen guys, if you deny this, you're denying the very gospel, the message you received, the message which you stand in, and the message by which you were saved. You're invalidating your entire faith. So he says, without it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is no good news. As John Updike in his famous poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, says, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acid rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours, our samed, our same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. So the record of these historical happenings, Christ dead, Christ buried, Christ risen, is the gospel upon which we stand. But because the gospel is historical, right, events that happen within human history, it's also reasonable. It's also reasonable. The message preached does not come from the ether, but eyewitness testimony. The gospel is the report of those who saw these things with their very eyes. Again, notice the apostle's wording um, in verse 3. He says, 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So the good news was not the Apostle Paul's own construction, something that he made up on his own, but something, rather, that he claims to have received. He says again, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Indeed, some scholars point out that the language that Paul uses here as he goes on to speak about the gospel um, on the third day, according to the scriptures, um, referring to the disciples as the twelve, these are not terms that Paul uses elsewhere in his writings. Indeed, terms that we can't find anywhere else in his writings. So the conclusion is, is that when the Apostle Paul gives this gospel summary, Here's the message that I preach to you. It is, in fact, a creed or some sort of confession that was at use, that was already formulated prior to the Apostle Paul's conversion. So he's saying, listen, this is what I received. This is what they told me, that first generation of Christians, the apostles. This is what they told me the gospel is. And now I'm delivering it to you. So there was already this creed in existence prior to the apostles' conversion. And so he passes it on to the Corinthian church, indeed the very wording as he received it. And being that he had already received it by the time he went to Corinth, it dates to a very early time after the resurrection. So this creed, right? Uh, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And then these following eyewitness accounts, um, scholars say that it dates, they believe, even to two or three years with, um, within the original happening of the resurrection. Meaning that this gospel formula that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians is in all likelihood the earliest Christian tradition that we have, going back to the very roots of the resurrection. And so that means, contrary to modern theory, that the resurrection was not a later fabrication of the church. Right, and if you think about the objections that are placed against the resurrection, this one does seem like it could be a reasonable one. That kind of thing happens all the time. Some famous historical figure. You think about people in medieval Europe around their ministry, even someone like St. Patrick. All these legends spring up in their midst. And so they say that's what the resurrection of Christ is like. It didn't really happen, but it's a story, a legend that came up around him. That seems like, well, based on other stuff, that might be able to, we at least have to as the church deal with it. But what this shows us is that the apostolic testimony from the beginning, was that Jesus died and rose. Literally from within a couple years of his resurrection, this is what they were saying. And so the Apostle Paul envisions himself as part of a chain of transmission that precedes him and that will outlast him. So here in this formulation of the gospel is something we are not at liberty to tamper with. The form in which it was received is the form in which it must be held on to and the form in which it must be passed down. 
Because upon this testimony, Christ dead, Christ buried, and Christ risen, our entire salvation rests. And there's also particular attention in the creed given to the burial of Christ. He died, it reads. Now that's final, right? He died, but it also continues, he was buried. It puts unique attention on the empty tomb. His body, his human body was buried And on the third day, that tomb was empty. There wasn't a body in the tomb. Meaning that the resurrection, and we'll get to this next week, was not a vision, or it wasn't an apparition, or merely a spiritual happening. Something irrespective of the human body of Jesus. They just didn't have these visions of this resurrected Christ. They saw him in his bodily form. The tomb was empty and a body, a human body, rose from the dead. So the resurrection does not merely concern Jesus' spirit. It's about his real human body with the same, as Updike says, hinged thumbs and toes. Salvation is not an escape from the material world, but the redemption and transformation of of it. Whatever awaits us, it's not an um, ethereal and esoteric existence, it's an embodied existence. I believe, says the ancient Apostles' Creed, in the resurrection of the body. We believe in God's plan for this material world. And so that encounters, or rather that counters, or at least significantly challenges another modern theory about the resurrection, and that's that the disciples had some sort of spiritual encounter with Jesus' spirit or his personality post-resurrection. Again, it doesn't entirely disprove it, but what it tells us is that that was not the apostles' testimony. That's not what they believed. From the very beginning, they were saying the tomb was empty, that the same body that went into the grave came out of the grave, Transformed, but still bearing the wounds of the cross. As Jesus said to Thomas, who was unbelieving, Look at my hands. Put your finger in the holes and touch my side. See that it's me, not some apparition. Then the creed goes on to cite eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. Now, not the event as it happened, but the appearances of the risen Christ. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Still another um, theory about the resurrection is that it was simply a hoax. Right? It was all put on. Now, if so, it was not one that the apostles had any concern to cover up. Right? They, they weren't trying to um, hide it under wraps, this lie that they had, if it was a lie. The creed cites 500 cooperating witnesses to which the apostle adds, most of whom remain until now. His statement is a kind of authentication. He says, if anyone wishes to check on this tradition handed down from the apostles, he says, go ahead, because a very large number of eyewitnesses are still alive and they can be seen and they can be heard. You can go talk to them yourselves. So, 
We all come to believe for various reasons. It may, be, it may have been a, a personal experience. It may have been this immediate witness of the Spirit upon your heart. It may have been any number of things. But the veracity and the truthfulness of the resurrection eyewitness reports undergirds it all. Now, our reasons to believe are valid. But if these reports are false, no matter what happened in your heart, no matter what you read from the Scriptures, no matter whatever it was, if these reports are false, either through deception or deceit, those reasons are canceled out. They're invalidated, and they don't matter. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, is the bedrock of all our belief. We can have our various reasons, but this is the one that supports them all. So the resurrection is an incredible claim. Jesus Christ died on the cross and on the third day rose again into the newness of life. What an incredible claim, and one that we should not attempt to make more palatable. Instead, Speak it for what it is, but also show that the substantiation around it is more than suggestive. Enough to make anyone puzzle over what actually happened that Easter morning. Hence, N.T. Wright, in his classic book on the resurrection, he concludes saying, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Those things happened. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the Scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. So, the resurrection is not one doctrine among many, but the very foundation upon which the entire faith rests, without which it's an empty hope. And in that statement, without which it's an empty hope, or as Paul says, if it's not true, we are of all men most to be pitied, in that statement, something essential about the resurrection faith is demonstrated. What we believe as Christians, this faith that we adhere to, is not ordered ultimately toward this present age, but beyond it, toward the age to come. Christianity, in other words, receives its significance not from this life, but from the future, from what is to come. And without that future, right, without the resurrection of the dead, nothing about what Christianity requires of us here and now in the present makes any sense. Indeed, without the resurrection, without this hope that we have, everything about our faith is nonsense. Without the resurrection, the teaching of Christ and that of his apostles is absurd. It's ridiculous if there is no resurrection. So skipping ahead now toward the end of our text this morning, listen to what the Apostle says, beginning in verse 29. He says, Otherwise, 
What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So Paul gestures toward his own apostolic ministry. He points the Corinthians toward his own life, the hardships and the sufferings which he had endured. And he declares that apart from the resurrection, it would profit him nothing. That it doesn't matter if there is no resurrection. Why face danger, he says? Why die daily? Why do any such thing if the dead are not raised? The whole shape and direction of his life would be simply a waste. It would be a tragic mistake at the end of the day. You see then that the manner of life required of us in the here and now as Christians only makes sense in light of the resurrection. All these things that are commanded of us, that we are supposed to live in obedience to, they only make sense in light of the resurrection. So let me ask, if there is no resurrection, does it make sense to take up one's cross? If there is no resurrection, does it make sense to love our enemies, to deny bodily pleasure and satisfaction, to turn one's back upon worldly success and happiness? Does anything about what Christ calls us to make sense if there is no resurrection? Not the slightest. It's absurd. If you take away the resurrection, the reason, indeed the motivation for the cross-centered life evaporates. The moral coherence of the faith is scrambled beyond recognition and all it becomes is a life-denying, self-mutilating ethic. Without the resurrection, it's all nonsense. Now listen, we don't carry the cross in genuine obedience. We, or rather, we cannot carry the cross in genuine obedience without the resurrection as the wellspring from which it's drawn. We don't pursue love and humility and mercy dying to ourselves daily because we merely want to be good people or because it's the right thing to do. Rather, we do those things. We live the Christian life because there is a resurrection. I mean, if one merely wants to be a nice, successful, and upright person, go to AA, watch a lifestyle blog on YouTube, buy a self-help book. That is not what Christianity is about. That's to trade the resurrection for a thin gruel of moralism. And if we're always telling ourselves that we need to be better because we need to be better, as if that were an end in itself, we're not going to get very far in obedience. It turns out that none of us really 
want to be that much better when the rubber meets the road. Aspirations to be a polite and well-mannered citizen turn out to be not that motivating. The good news is not moralism. The good news is not be a better person. The good news is death and resurrection, that you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. The church's way of being, this way of life that we're called to in Christ, is only worthwhile, it only matters if the resurrection is true. None of what you're doing makes sense unless you're going to be raised with Christ. And that's what the scriptures tell us. You have been raised with Christ. That's the bottom line. You died with Him. You've been raised with Him. Therefore, live this certain way. Therefore, do these things now. This is true of you. It's a fact. You are going to be this kind of person. You're going to stand with Christ in glory. Your body is going to be renewed. You're going to be made perfect in righteousness and holiness. That will happen. Therefore, the scripture says, live like it now. That's who you are. Live from that identity. You will be raised. Live out that truth. It doesn't tell us be better just to be better. It doesn't tell us pick up your bootstraps and and live a better life by the exercise of your own will. It says it's already happened in Christ. Therefore, now live this life. So because there's hope beyond the grave, our present lives are transformed. Death is not the ultimate horizon. And if it were, right, and the dead are not raised, then things would be quite different. The apostle says, if there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Apart from the resurrection, death has the determining word. It would cast its long and terrible shadow over the entirety of our lives, rendering them meaningless in the end. What would it matter? Righteous or unrighteous, young or old, rich or poor, all face the same end. Everyone's hopes extinguished by the grave. In fact, Ecclesiastes says, if a man lives a thousand years twice... Do not all go to one place. The death is the end. Death is the end for everyone. So it makes no final difference whether you live compassionate or cruel, whether you strive to be a saint or you're just a deviant. The lights are going to be turned off eventually. The meaningless of death and the final oblivion of everything would determine the shape of our lives, whether We liked it or not, it doesn't matter what kind of life you lived. In fact, the only inherent path left would be hedonism. Let us eat and drink. A life spent on pleasure and comfortability and ease. The goal would be to minimize inconvenience and sacrifice to the smallest possible amounts because this is it, right? This is it, so i got to make sure I'm happy and comfortable while... I have it, but this is not it. On the third day, death was defeated. Christ's resurrection fundamentally alters our relationship to death, and it opens up an entirely new way of life in the present. Death no longer has the determining influence 
over all our lives, over the meaning and purpose for which we exist. Death no longer has the deciding vote. It has been conquered, and resurrection life has sprung up in its place. And so the risen one calls us to trample this dying age underfoot, to live as strangers and pilgrims with the cross as our only possession because our true home is with him at the right hand of God. Death, our first and last enemy, is no longer terrible. We need not fear it because to die, as the apostle says, is gain. Here what St. Athanasius had to say about this in the 4th century in his apologetic work on the Incarnation. He says, No one in his senses doubts that a snake is dead when he sees it trampled underfoot, especially when he knows how savage it used to be. Nor if he sees boys making fun of a lion, does he doubt that the brute is either dead or completely bereft of strength. These things can be seen with our own eyes, and it is the same with the conquest of death. Doubt no longer then when you see death mocked and scorned by those who believe in Christ. That by Christ, death was destroyed and the corruption that goes with it resolved and brought to an end. Because Christ has triumphed, we can courageously face and overcome death and all the evils that befall us in this present age. Such things, make no mistake, and and nobody does, are truly dreadful. But it's not the end. Christ has opened a new and living way. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, the Apostle Paul says, a man who suffered severely, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, from what horizon does your life gather its coherence? From what horizon does your life take its meaning? Death or resurrection? Is your life determined by temporal ends, as if death were the end, as if this were it? Are we occupied with the things of this world in a way that says death is the end, or are our lives determined by eternal ends, knowing that death is not the end, but a doorway into true life? So the one end casts us back on ourselves, leaving us hopeless and alone, and the other opens up an entirely new manner of existence, making us courageous and bold in this dying age. You see, without the resurrection at the center of our attention, without the truth that Jesus has risen, and you have risen in Him, and that Jesus will return and He will raise your body, without that as the center of your life, There's no motivation to live as he calls us to. A pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, who is facing terminal pancreatic cancer, speaks about the Easter hope this way. He said in an interview, I do think that the great thing about cancer, that's one heck of a statement, is that Easter 
does mean a whole lot more because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger, and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. The resurrection is the center, and it causes us to live the life of Christ now. So, drawing things to a close, let's turn to the last portion of our passage. Now our attention is turned toward the great divine plan initiated in the resurrection of Christ. And it comes, God's ultimate plan, in three stages. First, there's the resurrection of the Christ. Then there's our resurrection at His return. And then, the apostle says, comes the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and everything becomes new. It all starts, starts, though, this dramatic plan with the first Easter morning. Christ's resurrection, the apostle says, is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead. That is, his resurrection is the initial reaping of the greater, greater harvest to come. His resurrection functions as something of a down payment for ours. Again, that gospel creed that the apostle Paul quoted says that Christ died for our sins. He hung on the cross and was laid in the tomb for us. Now, should we suppose that his resurrection is any different? No. It, too, is for us. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the guarantee, the seal upon our resurrection. It's as good as done. That's why Paul says, listen, if you guys say you're not raised, then Christ isn't raised. Because he was raised for you. And if Christ is raised, you must be raised. So it's as good as done. Indeed, the scriptures speak of our resurrection as if it were a current reality. Ephesians 2, you guys know the passage. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has done this, past tense. In some amazing sense, God has accomplished our resurrection already. Or Colossians chapter 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God, who sits at the right hand of God. It simply waits to be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, when He returns, our bodies will match our spirits. Christ's resurrection also functions as a preview of ours, an advanced taste of what is to come. The resurrection body of Christ is the mold into which ours will be cast. Ours will not be something different than His, but the very same. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will transform the lowly body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We will be conformed to his image. We'll talk more about that next week when the apostle actually explains what the resurrected body is. So Christ is raised. We are raised in his return. And then the scripture says when that happens comes the end. 
in our resurrection from the dead, the last enemy, death, will be defeated. Having ascended on high, Christ currently reigns as king, seated at the Father's right hand, exercising his power to bring his enemies, mutinous and evil spiritual powers under his control. He must reign, the apostle says, till he has placed all enemies under his feet. He's bringing all things that oppose his creation, that reap evil and sin and darkness under his control. He's abolishing them from creation. And scripture says when the last enemy is defeated, then comes the end. And it truly, it is an end. The present order, all that we take for granted, time and space, matter and energy, will meet their end and something truly new, we know not what, will come to be. The creation will enter into its final and completed relationship with God. Purged of the forces of death and evil, all things will will be brought into harmony in Christ. And then He will hand the kingdom over to the Father, so that the scripture says, God will be all in all. And so the end will be a new beginning when death and the former things will have been swallowed up and the entire creation will become transparent to and radiant with God's glory. God will be all in all. Now such is our hope. This present evil age assails us and it assaults us. But in all these things, the scripture says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We shall stand with Christ in glory. And again, it's all made possible by Christ. Dead, buried, and risen on the third day. And so he has given us the supper as a perpetual reminder of his death and resurrection, and moreover, a perpetual reminder that he is coming again. So let's celebrate now with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. As the music plays, please come up to receive the communion elements. Take time to prepare your hearts, and I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.